Hello, welcome to Crackle Comics Weekly. We're going to jump right into the show. This is Mike with Dan and Vince. And Vince is going to kick things off as DC celebrates Pride Month with the DC Pride special number one this week. Yes. It's time for another semi-monthly giant prestige anthology from DC. This one for June's Pride Month. We get a great introduction by Mark Andreco, who unfortunately does not write a story featuring Manhunter in this, in this issue. That would have been nice to see. So I'm not going to cover every single story because honestly, like some I just kind of skimmed or not really skimmed, but they just weren't as notable. So the first story here is Batwoman by James Tynan. And it's basically an Alice in Wonderland spin and the Mad Hatter's involved. And it's about fitting in, but also like, you know, knowing that you don't have to fit in and stuff like that. You know, it's pretty good. And the art by Trung Lee Nguyen is, I thought it was cute. I shared it with someone and they thought it was like creepy as hell. And I think it's supposed to be going for a mix. So maybe you wouldn't like it. Maybe you would really like it. But I think it lands exactly where it, where it wants to land. So this might have been my favorite story. But I think for kind of fan reasons, there's another one here that I liked more. If that makes sense. Like this was probably the best, I should say. So then we have Steve Orlando and Steve Byrne, the double Steve team with a story starring Extraño. And it's basically, the actual like present set story is he's just at the bar and Constantine hangs out with him. And so it's Extraño just telling Constantine a story. But the majority of, the, of the, this story is that story. And it's a team up between Extraño and Midnighter. And there's not really much more to comment on it, but I just thought I'd speak to who Extraño is. So he's a, he's a character from the new Guardians title. Uh, which was related to like Millennium, which was one of those 80s post-crisis crossover events. Like you have, you know, Crisis, Legends, and then you have, I'm probably going to get the order wrong, but like Millennium, Invasion, so-and-so. And then you get into some of the annual ones like Eclipse of Darkness Within and Bloodlines, whatever. But he was on the New Guardians, which is a really obscure team. I believe technically Ice and Fire were related to that as well but I might be getting mixed up because there's also a thing that they're related to called the Global Guardians. So I don't really know. But Extraño was a gay dude and he's like a magician type of character. And he, in the original stories, he was like really cringy, effeminate characterization. But more prominently and problematically, he, so I believe he was created by Steve Englehart. Like he was the writer of New Guardians. And obviously Steve Englehart has written certain good comic books through, through the years. But he wanted to tell a story about Extraño getting HIV. And actually, I think he just wanted to have Extraño come out as gay. I don't know that he was out in the very first like appearances. But the editor was like, no, I don't want a gay character in my comics. Because this was the 1980s DC. But eventually he comes out, whatever, whatever. And then later on, he contracts HIV from an AIDS vampire. Like, I swear to God. And he dies from AIDS. And so that's really weird and screwed up. But basically, Steve Orlando fixed the character in his like pieces and parts run on Midnighter. But that being said, he's kind of just gay Doctor Strange, which was what he was in the first place. So it's not really a difference, but especially the way he's like designed now and like the way they represent his like spells where it's like the, you know, like the glowy circles in front of his hands 
he's literally just DC Doctor Strange who happens to be gay. So I don't know. I mean, hopefully there are fans of this character. Then Vita Ayala has a story starring the questions. This is, of course, the Renee Montoya question. And the art is really the standout here. It's very noirish. The art is by Skylar Partridge, who I've definitely heard of before, but not super familiar with. But the writing is kind of cutesy. It's like the kind of thing where like Montoya runs across this one character uh, who's like running for office. And then there's a moment where you think Montoya is going to save the character, but no, the character can get gas too. So it's not a damsel in distress. Like Montoya shows up to save her and it's like, oh, I beat the guys up already. And then they go on a date eventually. So I guess that's the point. Like, you know, some of these stories, you want them to be cutesy. You don't want them to be like tragic, but it wasn't super interesting. There's a Mariko Tamaki one with Harley Quinn, which I think it's interesting where in a lot of these like one shots, we're seeing Mariko Tamaki telling stories of Ivy. So, you know, 10 years from now, when they do a Harley Quinn by Mariko Tamaki collection, you know, the ultimate version, it'll have all these little pieces as well. And this is Harley with Ivy. And it's really on the nose with their relationship. And it's something that I'm not sure we would have seen a couple of years ago. Obviously, I know they delve into it in the show. And DC just announced there's basically going to be like a tie-in comic to the show, which is also going to be very, uh, you know, outright with Harley and Ivy. The highlight here in this whole book for me is definitely the Alan Scott story. Of course, he now is out, uh, you know, Alan Scott was shown as a gay man in the New 52 title Earth 2, but it's like, you know, that was alternate universe, et cetera, et cetera. And they've now kind of, he's still a gay man, but they tweaked how they're presenting it and how the history works. And I kind of like this version better where it's basically the pre slash post crisis history, everything that exists. He still has his children. He still has his marriages, to his relationships with women in his past. But, you know, he's he's now coming out. And actually, in this context where he's coming out as an older man, that also gives it, an, you know, a different interesting dynamic, uh, which I think is pretty interesting, like I said. Um, and this is him trying to connect with his son, Obsidian, who also happens to be gay. It's, it's an interesting take uh, on the idea of show, don't tell. Because Alan is like, you know, he just recently came out, so he's still kind of struggling with sharing parts of his, you know, how he's experienced being closeted through his life and everything like that. So there's a moment where he's like, all right, I'm having trouble explaining some of this thing to you, things to you, son. So I'm just going to use my ring to like recount my memories to you. So we see some of like the some moments in Alan's life where he did kind of actually try and explore his identity and then like what moments, you know, pushed him back into the closet and things like that. Um, and it's pretty interesting. There's a touch of real history where Alan basically talks about like the history of like gay bars um, and how the law dealt with that. And it's also feels like pretty honest and authentic. This story is written by Sam Johns, who I'm not totally familiar with him. I think he must be, I think he's like a uh, friends or colleagues with James Tynan. Of course, James Tynan, has set up some of this Alan Scott stuff. I think some of like the previous story they co-wrote together and the art here is by Klaus Janssen, um, which it's pretty good. It didn't like blow me away. Um, but this was my favorite story. Then there's a Luciano Vecchio story. It's, it's effectively an Aqualad story, but I guess it 
I don't know if this is loosely related to that whole, uh, I forget what it was called. It was like the LGBT league. I don't remember what, what the, or the JLQ, JLQ. Um, I think this might be related to that, even though whatever that was didn't win the March Madness thing. So I don't know how this lines up, but there's a splash page where it's like every LGBT hero in DC all together because this is Aqualad going on a date at a pride parade. And so then some stuff goes down. So then it's like, I guess they're all there at the pride parade or like they're at pride parades in nearby cities. So then they all converge to save the day. And more interesting because Luciano Vecchio, I think he's heavily involved in Marvel's pride stuff as well. Like I think he does, he's doing the main cover for their book where it's like one of those border books, like the, uh, I guess that was the 25th anniversary when they did all the variants for all the, well, not variants. The main covers for all the books had like a border variant. Um, and Marvel's evoking that with their pride cover. Um, and then in the back here, we have some profile pages, just like we had with the uh, Asian. There was, you know, the last one we talked about was covering characters of Asian descent. But in this one, all the profile pages are CW characters. And like just, and I'm not even talking like, you know, the profiles on the characters as they appear in the comics that happen to be on the CW shows. I'm saying here are photographs from the CW shows. They're interviewing the actors and actresses. It's really weird. So we get we get bios on Dreamer, uh, and Dreamer, the 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 actress Nicole Maines, I believe is her name, who plays Dreamer on Supergirl. Um, in in the show, she's a transgender character. Um, and she's effectively created for the show because she's like a, she's basically a legacy version or like a different version of a, of a character from the Legion of Superheroes, but Supergirl is set in the present. So, or something, I don't really know. Um, but that, that actress writes her own character, a story in this issue. And that story was all right. Um, but Dreamer, Batwoman, White Canary, Constantine, Thunder, and Negative Man from the Doom Patrol all get bios here. But yet Thunder and Negative Man and White Canary didn't have stories in here. Constantine doesn't really. It's just really weird. I thought that was odd. Um, and then I'll just mention my favorite pinups. You know, there's a, they spread pinups through these. My favorites, Nick Robles does a Catman, and it's like total thirst trap. He's like shirtless, hanging on a branch. It's kind of funny. And then Sophie Campbell, uh, whose style I really like, she does a Harley and Ivy pinup. This was fine overall. There are certain characters or creators I would have liked to see. Like I already mentioned, Mark and Draco, Manhunter. And then there's like really deep cuts, like DC's first transgender um, superhero, you know, depending on how you want to define superhero at first, et cetera, et cetera, would be Coagula from the, the Doom Patrol and Rachel Pollock's run. I have no idea what Rachel Pollock is up to nowadays, but it would have been really cool to see, you know, some acknowledgement of that character. But there's only so much space on in these books. So I thought this was fine overall. I think they had the, the DC TV in the back because, because of Dreamer. So it fits that connection since the, the actress wrote the story. It is kind of like pretty cool to look and see like, oh, wow, all these characters are, you know, in television weekly that you can watch. So I didn't, you know, until you actually see the like the full list of them, it's like, oh, wow, that's so I think that, that was the reason why that was there. And it also, you know, functions. I think Brainiac 5 and Dreamer. Yeah, they're both in the Supergirl show because I think the Supergirl show has had some Legion characters, 
popping yeah. out, but I haven't I haven't watched a lot of any of those DC shows to be honest outside of like some of the crossovers, but mostly I share my thoughts with Vince. Uh, I liked it a lot. I liked the Alan Scott story probably is my favorite followed by the Renee Montoya question story. And I completely agree with you that the art and the Batman story has a grace and beauty to it, but also a, a haunting quality, which totally fits uh, the, t- the tone that I think Tynan's story was going for, but no, another very solid and good, uh, DC oversized special. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say one last thing, and then Dan has some thoughts, I imagine. But just to further clarify, like I get it. Uh, obviously, I, I think they did do the CW bios to connect it to Nicole Maines and Dreamer, and it is definitely cool to say, hey, representation. You know, we have all these shows, and also there's like you know LGBT characters on all these shows, but also like. way more people are watching those shows than reading these books. And I think it would be cool because theoretically, Nicole Maine's writing this. You want people coming from the CW to this, not vice versa. If you're reading this book, you know that the CW shows exist. But if you're following Nicole Maine's The Supergirl, you want, ideally, you're coming to this. So I think in a sense, if anything, it would be cooler in this particular case where it's like, yeah, you know, they're on those shows, but as you just read through this, we do have, you know, that kind of representation in the comics as well. And so here's kind of more the comics perspective. And also this would be a perfect opportunity to be like, all right, you like that Midnighter story by Steve Orlando. Here are these three trades of Midnighter by Steve Orlando that you can check out. You know, here's this Rachel Pollock run on Doom Patrol that we've never reprinted. Uh, so hit those back issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Dan, what did you think? No, I mean, not much else to add. I feel like stylistically, I, I like the Batwoman story. Kind of felt a little bit like Superman red and blue for a second there. I feel like they were just using shades of purple or blue and red and sometimes purple there. But yeah, that one was good. I have a question, though. Is Alan Scott, is he the oldest character like by publication in DC to be to come out as gay? I was trying to think of like any any older ones. Not sure I mean, chronologically, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he's the character originally debuted in like 1940 or something. Um, obviously, just to clarify, triple clarify for Dan, he came out as gay on the alternate universe in 2011. Yeah. This version, this quote unquote, this version came out as gay like literally like two months ago. Um, but yeah, retroactively, by publication date, probably DC's earliest gay character. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what that really signifies when he was obviously not gay for seventy yeah. seventy-nine yeah. of those years. But <laughs> yeah. but the trivia still works, I guess. Yeah, I, I thought overall though this was handled pretty well and um, good to see this type of stuff out there for sure. Did you did, did you have? Do you say Batwoman was your favorite story? Did, w- which one was your favorite? I mean, stylistically, I thought Batwoman was good, but I really like that Alan Scott issue. I, I mean. In terms of story, I like that one more. So Okay. So we pretty much hit across the board then on which ones we like. But I'll head into our second book. G- the Good Asian, number two, Porn Sack Machote, Alexander Tafagi, and then Lee Ruffridge on colors, Jeff Powell on letters. So Detective Edison Hark is continuing the trail of the missing maid who's now, you know, murdered. And then the murder in Chinatown is the skate. This is the point where, you know, if you're following a noir, it's can- starting to take a turn a little bit. And he's also, he's feeling guilty again for 
you know, ratting on the boy who showed him the body down in Chinatown, but they turn out to be clear to the crime, which is good. But there's, you know, massive indication that while in the process of being interrogated, just massive physical abuse from the police and the questioning, which makes Hark feel guilty as he is an Asian American detective causing harm to people in Chinatown. It's, it's this very like layered way this book is written it's it's very very good but hart gets in touch with one of the local politicians who gives him info on what might be causing the murders and it takes this turn to like this ancient hatchet man named the hoi long which may be responsible but harks like scoffs at it simply as like oh that's a legend it, he doesn't take it seriously but later on at a party he encounters his stepsister who basically spills the beans where it's like you're not as smart as you think you are and and drops the the nugget that you know your your stepfather who is he's investigating the the their maid uh who he's having an affair with and he's like he also she's like you also don't know the the death of your act your biological father he does and he's not telling you so it's kind of like this massive bond shell that gets dropped on him at the end of the issue but before that of course while on the stage people are dancing and you know the hatchet man comes out and you get this awesome action scene of uh, Edison Hark trying to catch him in the streets of Chinatown. And he gets like a hatchet thrown into his shoulder. It's very, very good action. And then just the colors by Lee Ruffridge, like anytime uh, Detective Hark is going to like these different locations, you'll see like a green just layered on the page or a red or a blue to just give life to the, to this different world that they're trying to portray in 1940s Chinatown, San Francisco that, it just it, it's this is just great noir like through and through. It's one of my favorite books out on the shelves right now. I highly, highly recommend this, but I, I can't wait to see how how the case adds more intrigue and mystery as we go further. But more detective stuff. I'll hand it over to Dan for Batman, the detective number three. Batman, the detective number three, written by Tom Taylor, art by Andy Kubert. Uh, in Paris, France, Batman is rescuing a shot man by the name of Henry Ducard to which we get a flashback to when he, uh, Henry trained Bruce in his secret agent ways. And then we also see Bruce kind of learn about how to follow people, investigating evidence, and making friends with the right people in the, I guess, the police, whatever, law enforcement. So basically, this guy taught Bruce how to be a detective, um, which is kind of cool to see that background. Bruce tries to do it solo, you know, kind of just, just trying to kind of do his own thing without any help from outside agencies after everything he's gone through with his parents at this point. I think he's he's like 18 or 17. I'm not sure. He's pretty young when he meets Henry for the first time. So he gets captured by this one like criminal only to be bailed out by Ducard who ends up shooting this guy in the face. And Bruce obviously does not approve of that, at least not in the comics universe, but maybe in the movie universe, he would approve of that anyways. Bruce and Ducard fight and Ducard gets away and he's basically just like, I'll see you around. We're, we're kind of disagreeing here. So Bruce does not see him for a while until he finds him in a sewer in London. And then we then pan back to present day where Bruce is being arrested for the death of Ducard, kind of going back to the beginning of the story here. So yeah, this is, this is pretty interesting. Obviously it's pretty on the nose with, with the name of the story, the series, but this was nice. The art, I guess it's, I guess it was okay. It's just, I don't know, something about the style. Andy Kubert, I know that's a very famous name, but um, 
I don't know. I just something about it. I don't know. Who else read this? Anyone else? Mike? You know, you know, I read this. Okay. My bad. <laughs> I don't know why we'd always do this. I know my bad. Sorry. It's funny. I, I gave you this one. I am midway through the week. I was like, Oh, Dan's not going to know who Henry Descartes is. Maybe I should have switched with you, but yeah. Cause we, we saw Henry Descartes get what he got his throat slit by that Batman Colton issue too. And this was the function of here's the flashback. So in case you don't know who Henry Descartes is, we'll catch you up. He's, he's one of the people that trained Batman when he was going around the world. Uh, and he's kind of like this master yeah. thief, which in case you're wondering the, you, you watch Batman begins, right? Yes. So Liam Neeson, before he reveals himself as Ra's al Ghul, he, he gives his name as Henry Descartes. Interesting. That was like, okay. it's kind of a nod in the movie. Gotcha. So that's like a, a little nugget, but Henry Descartes is obviously a different character. Patrick, yeah. he's used in the Batman and Robin run by Tomasi and Gleason. I think that's the last time he, he showed up before this book. But no, I, I like anytime we get uh, Bruce traveling around the world when he's learning how to become Batman. I always think that's a very kind of it, in the world of Batman comics where everything is explored. That's kind of like the small, you know, nugget center where nothing is really like there's never been like a a true like you know maxi series or like any series devoted of bruce going around the world on how he learned how to become batman every once in a while you'll get like a five or six issue story or maybe a couple page sequence yeah it's like the last vast unexplored vert like you know stories for batman uh from things we've seen before which is always kind of a fun thing i always eat up but then also like you mentioned andy hubert's art there's there's parts where it looks good, parts where it looks bad. I think it's Sandra Hope who's doing inks, maybe colors. I can't remember off the top of my head. And I think she's worked with Kubert pretty often. I think they pretty much work in tandem at this point. So I'd say the pages where it's like the flashback and Batman's in like the blue and gray with the yellow oval, those look awesome. Yeah. Uh, the worst things in the few, the more things in the present and past where it was young Bruce, those are your little rougher pages. But the but you can see that Andy Kubert went all out when he was drawing blue and gray and yellow oval. And I, I guess I'll leave it here where it's a coordination, not the greatest thing this week, as this book ends with Bruce getting taken into police custody for a murder he didn't commit. And we'll, we'll get to that in Detective Comics. But it's just obviously this series has taken place in somewhere in the future. It's not in continuity. But it is funny that both books kind of end on the same note. Yeah, uh, but I'll get to that when we get detective. I'll hand it over to Vince for Geiger number three. Yes, the third issue in the new series at Image from Jeff Johns and Gary Frank, the critically acclaimed creators of Doomsday Club. So this officially confirms here that the glowing man does use Geiger as an alias, um, which is something that I think I questioned in previous issues whether that was the case. We get to see more of his backstory here in Nuggets and then flashback to scenes we missed of the prince trying to track him down. And the prince, uh, when they had their confrontation, they opened the bunker to reveal his wife and kids, of course, are long dead. They're skeletons. So that make, but that still makes, you know, Geiger very angry. So it, the way he works is there's like rods like installed into his back. And I guess that's like loosely related to how like nuclear power works i don't really know how that works but you know you read you hear about like you know rod you know nuclear rods and such so when he pulls them out of his back that's when 
I guess they like stabilize him. So when he pulls them out, that's when he starts glowing and gets all like nuclear stuff and can punch people and explode. So he gets really mad and screws everyone up and scars the prince's head, uh, as we saw in the previous issue. So now back in the present, those runaway kids whose mother was killed, they're trying to get him to help them. And he resists them. He's like, yeah, I don't want friends and stuff. Just like, I helped you out real quick, but now you're you're all, you know, you can figure it out. But then the knights show up again. He screws them up and agrees to help them. And that's where we end here. The majority of this is just showing scenes that have already happened, like between issues um, and also the flashbacks that I mentioned. I commented on that last issue, the idea that a lot of stuff happened off panel that we didn't see. And at the time, I was like, that's a choice, but like, it's totally fine. Like, we can move on. You don't have to show every single event that happens. You don't have to have it all on the panel. But I guess Jeff Johns was like, I didn't want to show it to you then, but now here's a whole issue showing you everything that I skipped. So like, if, I don't know. I mean, it's all entertaining, but this issue, it's basically like, hey, you remember all the stuff we referenced in the last two issues but didn't actually show you? Here it is. So it's kind of a weird issue, but the writing's good, the art's good, and uh, I'm enjoying it still. Well, you have to give it credit for one thing. Issue two uh, did leave us with a cliffhanger where all our questions would be answered. And they were. Uh, they delivered. It wasn't It wasn't just uh, drop pieces here and there. We get a full time to explore exposition and backstory. I, I love that page of Gary Frank where it was uh, where he was like lit up kind of halfway and you see his like eyes, but you still see like the gums of his teeth and stuff. I was like one of the best Gary Frank pages I've seen in years. This the every issue so far is read fast, but man, you can just tell these two guys are having fun and it makes for a very fun and enjoyable comic book. I don't have much more to spend on it in the recap, but like this has lived up to being one of my favorite Jeff Johns, Gary Frank projects in quite some time, just because you can tell that these guys just are, I think creatively they're not restricted by anything and they're able to just go out and tell this crazy story and have fun with it. I mean, to be fair, you're comparing it to Doomsday Clock and I guess Batman Earth one. So Kind of low bar. Yeah, but I mean, don't don't shit on them for that. Like, I could, I, I just praise them. Like, I think they're having fun here, and yeah. no, I'm they get to that. do their own thing. You know, that clearly, I mean, Doomsday Clock has issues, obviously, with them, but also, you know, editorial wise as well. But th- this continues to be good. But I'll I'll head to Black Hammer Visions number five, which I thought this was the last issue, but no, it's not. I think there's one more. But this is Kelly Thompson, Leonardo Romero, Jordi Belair, and then Nate Kaikos on letters. So this issue follows the character of Skulldigger, who I personally don't think I've come across while reading the world of Black Hammer books. But to give you an idea, he's basically like a more violent Batman. And he looks like a he looks like a mashup of Bane and Crossbones a little bit. He also carries like a giant like skull on the back of this chain. I can't remember what that kind of weapon is. I think it's a, is that a flail? No, it's not a flail. Uh, but one of those things where you have something at the end of a chain, you can throw it out. Uh, that kind of doohickey. When it, you know, it looks good. And visually, it looks very awesome. And, you know, well, me and Vince will gush over the art here in a second. But he also, he runs a butcher shop. That's his day job. And he's on the trail of a jewel thief who is very reminiscent of Catwoman. Maybe a little bit of Electra there as well. But with a more moralistic stance, like she's an eco-terrorist. But uh, she clearly lays out the reasons for what she's doing. So she uncovers the identity of Skulldigger and like 
tracks him to the butcher shop. She coded, uh, she coded him in like a scent that only her German shepherds could find him at, which is pretty cool. And then she's like, asks him to help with the case and he like begrudgingly accepts. And it turns out it's like a double turn. She gets attacked at this party while she's trying to steal this one thing. And due to partial blame on both sides, Skulldigger's too late to try to save her. So she gets stabbed and killed. We get this really emotional uh, death scene and you keep, you know, kuda, like you got to give credit to Kelly Thompson here. Like almost no words in this scene, just just communicated on the page of whatever notes Kelly Thompson maybe gave to Leonardo Romero here. Just beautiful choreography all around. And then, you know, Jordi Blair colors, which uh, I feel like every show we talk about how great Jordi Blair is as a colorist. But, you know, this is all very crisp. The drama levels here from Thompson, all good. One of the strongest issues of the week and of this series, I think. I think this is high up for me and Vince this week. Uh, I think definitely maybe my favorite issue of this kind of prestige miniseries of different creators taking on snapshots of characters in the Black Hammer universe. Yeah, and I mean, I don't have many comments on the story or anything like that because it's, you know, a one-off and Mike covered, you know, a lot of the plot and everything like that. It's all executed perfectly. The art is just freaking perfect from both Romero and Blair. I just really, you know, and this isn't native to them because... um you know, Lemire designed this character and there was a mini series with, uh, definitely pronouncing wrong, but Tonchi Zonchik, however you pronounce it, um, Eastern European guy. But so this is more credit to them, but I just really, really love the design of Skulldigger. I like that he's a butcher. I like his whole thing. Um, and his, his like weird weapon where it's like a chain whip, but with like a grabby, like metal skull on the end. Really cool. And then, yeah, the, the the Electra moment, you know, obviously Black Hammer is all about, you know, kind of, um, you know, homages and, you know, takes on mostly DC, as far as I know. And obviously here we get, it's a lot of like the Batman Catwoman dynamic. And I know in the separate series, it's Skulldigger and Skeleton Boys. So there's also like a weird like Batman Robin, like legacy hero kind of thing. Um but the, the one moment, especially like the way it's like presented and stuff, definitely at least evocative of Electra. Um, and this was just really cool. Um, it definitely makes me want to read that miniseries and just dive into Black Camera more in general, which I, you know, I know Mike is caught up in it or caught up to an extent and knows a lot more about the world than me. And I need to catch up um, because I, I mean, I, it's pretty much. I'm pretty certain I will love it because it's just completely up my alley. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised you haven't read more of this. It's kind of a book made for you. It's Jeff Lemire where he gets to just do, you know, crazy stories with like basically the DC or Marvel characters, but they're his own creations and own spins to it. Like, for example, Dr. Star clearly is a four issue take on Starman for him where so much so I think he had to change the name. But no, that I it, this is great. It You mentioned execution like. We didn't have to know much about Skulldigger, but I got enough personality just from this story where I'm like, all right, I like Skulldigger. He's pretty cool. So with, and like I said, like you said, execution, if it lives up to it, it's flawless. You got a good comic book and you know, that's just the name of the game with it. So one of definitely one of the strongest issues because of that and how they pulled that off, but I'll hand it back over to Dan for his favorite book at Marvel right now, Iron Man number nine. I mean, Korvac number nine. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So Iron Man number nine, written by Chris Cantwell, art by Cafu, colors by Frank Diarmada, and letters by Joe Caramagna. Caramagna. So we open 
the issue with a flashback to the future, if you want to call it that. So in the year 2997, Korvac is killing a few people uh, that are hiding from the Badoon, to which we find out that Korvac himself works for the Badoon, who tortured him and basically experimented on his body. And we actually do get a page here where they show the Korvac that was from the Korvac saga that had like the like flat bottom piece that didn't have legs. So a lot of hearkening back to the like original Korvac saga and the Badoon, which were longtime villains of the original Guardians of the Galaxy team. So really cool to see that. But in the present, Korvac and his group of goons land on Rivalis, I believe. It's like a moon where they run into the original Human Torch, Jim Hammond, who turns out to be Korvac's brother, I guess. So I think that has probably been established in continuity. I just just not, did not remember that. So Korvac offers and makes Jim Hammond into a stronger version of himself, basically making him Adam One. I guess that's what he was referred to. Uh, we then get another flashback of Korvac in Forest Hills with Karina when he is confronted by the Avengers. So throwback to the original Korvac saga. Uh, definitely saw this coming at, at some point during this run, which is very cool to see. Classic uh, Avengers drawn by Kafu. Really cool to see that. Uh, just then, Jim Hammond comes to and discovers that Korvac killed all the Avengers, to which Korvac has to explain, like, yeah, I killed them, but I brought them back and then killed myself in the process, which is what happened in the Korvac saga. So he was being truthful when he said that. But Jim still sees the malicious intent he has. And just as he's about to lash out and destroy Korvac, the controller steps in and gives... Actually, I think he had a disc on him before they started experimenting on him. But uh, he engages the controller's disc, which subdues Jim Hammond. And Korvac walks off very disappointed that Jim will be more of a slave to him than a brother as they use him to go kind of build up their arsenal to go confront Galactus on Tatu. So Iron Man does not make any appearance in this issue aside from the flashback of Korvac saga. So we get some kind of cool panels there, but no real updates on that. So yeah, I, this is actually a good issue. Does it make my pick of the week? I would say probably not just because Iron Man doesn't really appear in it. But it's still, I think, a good issue and a necessary issue for this run. I think it's good to have time to kind of reestablish, you know, Korvac's character and always having some flashbacks to the Korvac saga is very nice to see as well. So, yeah, that's what I think about Iron Man number nine. I just want to say, like, I, I made the joke at the beginning, but no, I, I, I pretty much agree with Dan through and through here. And it's not unlike things that we would see with, the Ed Brubaker Captain America run where we get an issue just focusing on villains to let things breathe a little bit where I, I mean, I, I see the parallels with the way these runs are kind of running together, at least in the way of format. And it makes sense uh, why, for why we have this. It's a very good issue, but Vince, I, I think the biggest part about this that I liked was that it completely references Jim Hammond getting that new body in that invader series we read and showing Jim Hammond's contempt for Tony Stark for putting him in that like new body and not just fixing him. And I think that it just plays deeper into that, you know, Tony's demons kind of thing that I really like here. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate the continuity and I appreciate that we're fixing it because that was like, I was like 
very iffy on the Innovator series. Like there were parts that I really loved and parts that really annoyed me. And putting the Human Torch in a shitty Iron Man armor <laughs> definitely pissed me off. So I'm happy that we fixed that. And, you know, obviously, eventually at, later in this series, I assume Jim Hammond's going to be able to walk away, not under the control of Korvac, but still in a fixed body. So that's a great development. The page with the Avengers, it's like, it's literally just a flashback, but it's like total nostalgia bait. And I really loved it, you know, especially like we get like a line, I believe, from um, from Wonder Man. Yeah. No, I'm blanking on her name now. The uh, the robot chick. What's her name? Jocasta. 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 We get a line from Jocasta, who uh, was in Dan Slott's Iron Man run. Um, and then, yeah, I, I don't remember how much of that, like, uh, I'm assuming all of this Korvac backstory we already knew, and it's just basically a recap. I would be very surprised if any of this is new here, but if it is new, you know, he's got an interesting backstory. I don't really recall. Um, that said, like, I still got to definitely knock off points for this just because Iron Man technically technically doesn't appear, I think, on a single page. Is there, like, two pages at the end actually with him? I don't even think so. No, it's all, it's all Corvac. I mean, he's, te- he's, like, he's technically on, like, two pages because of the flashback. But there's a really good page of Cafu drawn where he's getting zapped by Korvac in the flashback. It looks awesome. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's good. Jim Hammond's armor worse than Mr. Fantastic's armor from Empire. Yes. Yeah, because it was, it was like, <laughs> quote unquote, permanent. It, yeah. Well, the other thing is that it looked like you took, like, if you had an action figure of an Iron Man toy and an uh-huh. human torch, it looks like you just. The- <laughs> you you painted the Iron Man toy yellow and orange and put a fire emblem on it. And then you just stuck you, you pulled off the Iron Man head and just stuck the, the human torch head on top of it. It was not it was not good. It didn't even look like his head belonged on the body, which is kind of the point because you gave him a spare armor and yeah. hooked up his head to it. And then gave him like this really weird logo. So it was not it was not a high point for that up and down invader series. That I, I mean, I liked it more than Vince did, but yeah, I definitely agree. It had its up and down moments. That was one of the big down moments. But instead of talking about down moments, Vince can talk about one of his favorite series in Strange Academy. Yes, we're up to the 11th issue, so almost a year in, probably plus five months because of, you know, what happened in 2020. Scotty Young and Bertha Ramos, as usual. It's finals time. So Toth stays up late studying and then gets shattered. Because remember, he's the crystal dude. And Cat Beast, who is kind of the main character, Emily's sidekick, but he, I feel like I haven't seen him in multiple issues. He knows a spell to restore him once they put all the pieces back together. So the hit, Toad's parents show up. So it's the queen of the crystal warriors. And then I think it's a man thing. It's not like the mad thing, man thing, Ted Salas. And also Toast's new girlfriend, the like, Fairy girl helps as well. And it, this actually footnotes, I don't really know what it's footnoting. It's something to do with his mom. It's footnoting to Weird World Volume 2. So during, well, Weird World is like a really old thing, but during Secret Wars, they like like fully connected Weird World to the Marvel Universe, and there were like man things involved and Crystal Warriors, and that was a Jason Aaron thing. And then after Secret Wars, 
they made it like this little girl on like a magic car. And it was, I think it was Sam Humphreys. So I think they're referencing that. I never read that. It was, it's kind of interesting though, that we get a footnote to it. So they put him back together, but he's missing one piece. He, his heart shard is missing. And so they assume there was foul play and they call in Howard the duck to investigate the murder. And Howard is questioning all the students. There's an NFT joke in here, which is really weird. And spoilers, it was Calvin. And it turns out now his leather jacket is like the symbiote type thing, but it's actually Mr. Misery from Jason Aaron's Doctor Strange run, which of course this series has been, you know, pulling from throughout uh, little bits and pieces. And Mr. Misery, so Jason Aaron introduced the idea that like magic in the Marvel universe is not just something that like Strange can't just go, whoopoo, here's a spell. Like magic is like a resource and it's finite and things like that. So in order to like counteract or fix that, basically Mr. Misery is like the built up like cost of magic or something. I don't really remember the specifics, but at least in this context, he basically just looks like this one character is Venom now. And Umberto Ramos obviously has drawn symbiote stuff in the past. And I think even if you're very not very much not a fan of Ramos, you're mostly criticizing, saying that like his anatomy sucks and his he's got like jagged style and everything when things looks weird. But if that's your take, in theory, he's actually a great artist for that kind of like symbiote type of thing. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes from here. And we're so this issue is basically focused on Toth, and then I guess next issue we may get some more on Calvin. So these last couple issues have been pretty interesting where we're getting little spotlights on some characters. Also, the zombie chick makes a joke about uh, how she really has to moisturize her skin because she's a zombie. I thought that was funny. Over in Detective Comics, number 1037, this is Mariko Tamaki, Victor Bogdanovich, Jonathan Glapion, with Bogdanovich on inks also, and then Jordi Belair in colors. And then we have two backups here, exclusive, written by Mariko Tamaki, Carl Moster, Jordi Belair in colors. And then three minutes with John Ridley, Dustin Nguyen, and John Kaliz on colors. So John Ridley sneaking in, but also kind of when I saw the name, my eyebrows jumped because hardly do they do interiors anymore. It's Dustin Nguyen drawing Batman, who all the way back to the Batman Reborn era, like Streets of Gotham with Paul Dini, like Dustin Nguyen is one of my favorite Batman artists in that time. So always excited to see when that name pops up on a Batman book. But in the main feature, Batman and Huntress are wrapping up their patrol from the last issue when Bruce on the ground is met by Gotham City reporter Deb Donovan, giving him the heads up that the police are once again looking to question him because there's been another murder in his neighborhood. This makes two women like the same week on Bruce on Bruce's block, no less. And, you know, of course, he's the one that's last seen talking to her. And this time, you know, he's not getting out of it with the scapegoat alibi because no one was around him this time. So. He's taken away for questioning. And Mr. Worth, this new villain, like he's a mobster, uh, kind of looks like the Kingpin, but with like long hair, um, thinking that he's also killed his daughter, Sarah, which like launched this whole thing, uh, basically goes off the deep end and launches a full on assault on the police precinct and blows it up with the missile launcher while Bruce is inside, able to escape and get to one of his cave hideouts. And Bruce is, you know, able to alert Oracle and Huntress to get Lady Clayface to safety. And we saw her in the last issue while he starts to get engaged Mr. Worth in a fight, because then it, we end with uh, with Batman springing into action to fight Mr. Worth. So we'll get that in the next issue. But the first backup f- features, 
uh, Gotham City reporter Deb Donovan as she's working on a case for an article about the seedy mobs of Gotham and also Lucius Fox being the new head of Wayne Enterprises trying to put pieces together. So I, I just love how organically uh, Tamaki is weaving the supporting cast of this kind of status quo of Batman. It, it just feels so fully connected with with her writing the backups. But the second flashback is in the early days of Batman with Dick Grayson as Robin. And it really serves as more of this retcon for Lucius Fox as Lucius doesn't like Bruce anymore because he thinks he's put too many people in danger, roping him into, you know, the bat family. And that's why he, I think, I guess Joker war ended with Bruce losing his fortune and Lucius getting it and Lucius keeping it. And, you know, it, it's, it's the whole point is set up here. It's one of the early times of Bruce out with, with Dick and then Alfred and Lucius in the bat cave. Uh, testing out new equipment and Lucius like being scared that Bruce is putting this child in danger and, you know, thankful that his like, you know, shielding on the Batmobile worked, but he's like, Bruce is putting one of these days, it's not going to be worth it. So it's, it, it was that the story was good. I, I obviously there for the dust new art, but you know, another solid issue of uh, Tamaki's detective comics so far really love how, like I said, she's using the backups to weave into her run organically gives life and personality to this segment of Gotham that's in the spotlight right now. No Dan Moore interiors this time, but we did get a Dan Moore cover. But, you know, when your backup is Victor Bogdanovich, who is the closest artist today in emulating Greg Capullo possible, and now even more so with Jonathan Glapion, who, you know, inked Capullo's Batman with Scott Snyder, is now inking his pencils here with his own assistants, it looks even more like Greg Capullo Batman. And you can't complain about that. So I, I feel like another very solid issue of Detective Comics. Now, I'll pull my card and I'll ask Dan if he read this one, because I think we were talking about it earlier. But now prove me wrong or prove me right. I did. I read the first story. That's all I read. So okay. right and wrong, I guess. No, the, the this issue is amazing. Mariko Tamaki. I've read a couple of things from her from Marvel. So... Yeah, I mean, this the pacing of this issue is very nice. The whole sequence where her dad shows up and just basically blows up the jail cell is just perfectly executed. I really, really like this. And it probably is a catalyst for getting me back into reading Detective Comics again now, especially after Tomasi left. But yeah, I, I would yeah. say like this, as far as backups go, this is the book to read them because Tamaki has pretty much written all of them. Yeah. So like the first, the first parts of it was like Huntress and the backups. And then the last two issues, Batman and Huntress have teamed up because their cases have intersected. So it's yeah. like everything is weaving very organically in and out of it. And I love it, but we'll talk about justice league last ride. Yes. So justice league last ride written by Chip Zdarsky art by Miguel Mendonca. And colors by Enrica Aaron Angiolini. Not really much to talk about here, honestly. Before we, before in like, I guess, pastime, whatever, we see Wonder Woman fighting hordes of Apocalypse as she tells Cyborg and Nightwing to evacuate Earth. Uh, Batman and Manhunter infiltrate Darkseid's control center as they're fighting off Demogorgons. I'm not sure if that's what, is that, is that what they're called? I think that's Stranger Things, whatever. Um, as Superman and Green Lantern face off against Darkseid's minions. And then Darkseid shows up with a little tiny quip like, sorry, am I late or something like that, as he's holding two seemingly dead guardians in his hands. Uh, now in the present, Batman is flying with Flash and Wonder Woman while they're stashing Lobo to go take him to Apocalypse. That's where they're transporting him. 
Um, out in space, we have Superman and Green Lantern, John Stewart, helping the ship kind of stay away from black holes. They're actually flying around black holes so that they can avoid detection from, I guess, villains and stuff like that. So as they're flying, you know, Superman is kind of being talked to by John Stewart about how, you know, saving the day is everyone's everyone's, you know, mantra, not just yours, and kind of lecturing him a little bit as Superman looks off and sees that a ship is being sucked into a black hole, to which we get Green Lantern, Hal Jordan showing up to save the day and saving the ship from being sucked into the black hole. Uh, the Justice League shows up on Apocalypse as Lobo continues to taunt and mock the team, saying that Apocalypse is not dormant and that they are walking into a lot of trouble and headache ahead. So honestly, not too much happens in this issue. You know, we this is kind of just like a filler issue, I guess, until we get to Apocalypse. But the in- introduction with Darkseid was kind of cool. But yeah, really not a lot happens here. So yeah, that's what I got for Justice League. Last ride number two. No, it was it was another good issue. Like nothing happened, but it was all character stuff. It was all like cat, you know, still fi- feeling out where these characters are after we had the Justice League breakdown in the first issue. This gives a little bit more on the backstory of why that happened, why they disbanded. I I liked how Jordan's integration here. I thought it was it was a very solid character building issue, and for this kind of suicide mission to get. Lobo stashed on Apocalypse as you know, going undercover, flying around black holes. Mendel Mendoza's art looks great. Uh, we I commented on that in the first issue, though. But Chip Zdarsky, you know, Eisner nominated Chip, Chip Zdarsky for best continuing series for Daredevil, which is one of our favorite Marvel books. And for some reason, Vince hates Chip Zdarsky and won't read this book. And it's I don't weird. know what I don't know what Chip Zdarsky did to, did to Vince. But, it's weird because I thought, like, from the first issue, I thought it was just going to be, like, Batman and Superman taking Lobo. I didn't know the whole Justice League was going to, to transport him well, to Apocalypse. It's called Justice League Last Ride. I know. I just, I thought they said they were going to split up and they were going to set up a base on the moon and all that stuff. Yeah, well. Later no, they got to get Lobo to Apocalypse for That's the true. next thing to happen so they can fight Darkseid again. Probably. We'll see. But it remains good, which is the important thing. But I'll I'll say goodbye to you and bring Vince back. You got to talk about the Hellfire Gala. Previously on X-Men. Yes, in X-Men number 21 by Jonathan Hickman. This is the final issue of this series of X-Men, which is a weird thing to say. Art by four people, Nick Dragata, Russell Dodderman, Lucas Wernick, and Sarah Pacelli. They're mostly in different sections. So it's not like, you know, it doesn't feel all over the place, but just colors by Nolan Woodward. So keeping it all with some consistency. We start with an epic argument between Charles, Eric, and Namor. However, all three of them look so damn stupid. Charles and Eric look stupid because it's the Hellfire Gala. And Namor is still wearing the stupid Jason Aaron costume and the costume that annoyed me in that Invader series that we referenced earlier. And they are basically like, hey, Namor, join us and we'll give you a seat on the council. And he reminds them that he's an actual sovereign king and controls 70% of the Earth's surface compared to their little island. And I'm not even really sure what their thinking is. Like, it's clearly only a power play because Atlanteans are not mutants across the board, just Namor. I mean, I'm sure there's like, you know, a couple other Atlanteans that happen to be mutants, 
but it's just Namor. Well, that wouldn't, uh, whatever. So he should join them because he's a mutant, which he kind of did like way earlier, in, you know, in the, in the fraction Brubaker kind of era. But then his whole people who are not mutants should fight on behalf of him for mutants. I, it doesn't really make sense um, in this, this time. So he tells them, go screw. And then the new X-Men team is selected and assembled. We have Rogue, Sunfire, Wolverine, parentheses, Lord Kinney, Sink, Polaris, plus Cyclops and Jean. So then we get to the cringiest part of this gala. So in real life, Marvel, I don't know how this was coordinated, obviously, invited real-life celebrity guests to the Hellfire Gala. So we have Patton Oswalt, George R. R. Martin at this party instead of writing his book, Eminem, Saquon Barkley of the New York Giants and our alma mater, Penn State. This is definitely not what these darn celebrities would want to hear. But I think in this like twisted meta sense that like Marvel corporate and PR doesn't care about, but Hickman may have in mind is that the inclusion of these celebrities here is actually like indicative of the dumb hubris that Charles has built up within this status quo and how it will all inevitably fail. Or maybe that's just me reading into it. But like how many X-Men fans are genuinely excited to see Patton Oswalt on a page with Magneto. Like no one wants this maybe in like an Avengers book, like, you know, when the Avengers go and they guest on Dave Letterman's show back in the day, but it's so forced here. It's like total sales PR gimmick and it's just out of place, particularly in X-Men. And, but if anything, it might work for this era, but in the opposite, in opposite way that Marvel thinks. And then we end with like this, telepathic fireworks which i think was supposed to be cool but in those like final two panels it's like really not cool so that's what this issue is it's basically setting up the x-men but there's another issue of basically the title x-men called planet size x-men which i'm assuming is more like number zero for the next x-men title but that will end the hellfire gala and then we'll have an x-men number one Theoretically, a more traditional series um, from Jerry Duggan. You know what the worst part of this was? It wasn't Patton Oswalt, and it wasn't George R. R. It was the Kevin Feige moment. Oh, well, you know, to be totally honest, I saw that page, and I was like, this person looks really familiar. But, like, you know, I'm not constantly looking at Kevin Feige. I'm sure there's some weird-ass MCU fans that are like, I want to see everything Kevin Feige does. But... Honestly, for half a second, I'm like, who is this? I thought it was like Bob Iger for half a second because I don't really know what Bob Iger looks like either. And it's like, oh, now you really clicked it for me. And that's terrible. That's actually like terror. That's I, I hate that. Yeah, that was like it. I, I don't think it's often where I totally roll my eyes at a comic book. But yeah, that was this week was a moment for it. Very much. Well, this so. is my. This is my thing then is like it has to I I feel like this has to be Hickman playing pulling a power play on Marvel and Marvel either being stupid or going along with it because it still benefits them, you know, even though because Hickman has like a different intention for it, it's still gonna be a but PR they reap the thing. reward to the PR no matter what. Yeah. Yeah. But like I I can't imagine that Hickman is like, I really wanna have celebrities guess like it, it definitely has to like 
have that slightly like twisted intention and like connection to what he's building and the themes of the themes of this run, the, the, you know, leading to Inferno. Otherwise, like if this was Hickman's idea and it's like genuine and saccharine, this is so cringe and like (laughs) inexcusable from a guy who like builds himself up as this like kind of indie oriented, like, you know, creative mind who wants to control this whole line. And if it was forced on him by Marvel and he went along with it, that's also not very, you know, doesn't reflect on him well when this whole line has been built up as, you know, Hickman's baby and he has control and he's even in charge of the collections, et cetera. So I don't, I know the rest, like this book is really supposed to be about introducing the new X-Men team, but those like two pages with the celebrity guests was, it's just terrible. And it drags down this issue and it's, it's always going to market. It'll be one of those issues years from now when when we look in back issues and you go, ah, remember when? Yeah, like, like, never mind. Knock on wood, like Saquon Barkley gets out of the league in one year. And then like 20 years from now, it's like, who is this Saquon Barkley in this X-Men book? He was in the league for like one year. Just well, hypothetically, if that happens. Hi- hypothetically well here, here's the deal vince we we went to, we went to a school where uh where he played football so to us we'll probably always remember who he was but in the entire public maybe not maybe not the best example but yeah like i think the george R. R. martin one is like what what because no one cares about game of thrones anymore it's like that's already dated now yeah, and I, I mean, he's allegedly working on that book, but has been working on it for a while. So putting him in this that show, no one cares anymore. Yeah, well, people will care when he finally releases that book, but seeing him in this book just reminds people that the book doesn't didn't come out and the show, you know, fell apart in the end. Yeah. So people aren't happy to see him, even if they're super fans of his writing. It's just, it's just I, really I still weird. say that. The Feige, the Feige moment was so so much worse. But he's like, "What's your story?" It's like, "I great." Well, I'm just hoping you don't screw it up like you did Spider Man at this point. Like, you know what? Like, maybe let's not get all excited. All right, I'll get. I'm going to talk about the Joker, which is like the worst transition ever. But that's that's what we have going for us at this point. The Joker number four, James Tynion in the fourth, Guillaume March, Arif Pranato. Action-packed issue here as Gordon finds himself in the middle of what is basically a war zone as the daughter of Bane watched his assault on the Joker's kind of compound hideout that he's stashed himself up to. And and I think they're in Brazil. And then we got like two other groups of assassins that come in all trying to take him out. So Gordon isn't the only one traveling across the globe to try to take out the Joker. So Joker is able to think fast on his feet and he's, you know, clear the room because he'd already had stashed like Joker gas barrels around like the compound and like ignited them. So it activates as a way for him to get away and also like kills everyone else around him. So he ends up strapping Gordon down to a chair and like knocks him out. And then when he comes to basically like gives him the whole rundown events, he's like, no, I didn't do that. Because you got to look at the way you got to look at the way the crime went. Wouldn't I want everyone to know it was me? Everyone, everything in this crime says it wasn't me. It's not my style. So like it is kind of like pan like it's 
you know, Joker pandering to Gordon, but like everything he says is right. And it does make you think. So I, I and these two characters have this Im- interesting chemistry between each other because of that, of their layered history. It it's, it's kind of, it's, you know, as it is now in 2021, Gordon Joker on the page is kind of more interesting one-on-one than Batman Joker because we've just had so much Batman Joker so recently um, that it's just like, it, it needs to cool off. So it's a, just a different way of doing a different Joker story, which is like it. But eventually Bane's daughter finds Gordon, tells him to like, maybe stop doing this and go back to the, go back to the light before you fall deeper into this darkness and you can't get yourself out of it. And then we have a Barbara Gordon subplot with Stefan Cass as she's using them to survey the woman who fought, who hired uh, Gordon. And then sensing that she knows she's being watched. We see like one of the, the talons of the court of the owls behind Barbara. So ooh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But another very good issue from what remains like, you know, still a very good issue and good comic book in DC uh, because it isn't what you think it is. So I still implore you, like, if you haven't gone on the Joker train yet, Joker is, it's pretty good. I recommend it. I'll come back to Dan for Amazing Spider-Man this week, though. Amazing Spider-Man had a lot of creators. So I'm probably going to butcher some of these names as I always do. So sorry about that. So written by Nick Spence. Oh, sorry, you want to you want to read them together? Okay, sure. When All we right. read together, are we going to say them like both at the same time? That's going to sound awful on audio. It's it's going to sound awful, but I'll, I'll I'll do it. Nick Spencer, Ed Brisson, Marcelo Ferreira, Carlos Gomez, Zay Carlos, Wayne Foucher, Carlos Gomez, Zay Carlos, because they're doing their own pencils and inks. And then yep. colors, Maury Hollowell, Andrew Crossley, and Eric Archeninga. Wow, that's Thank you. It, it's 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 a crowded house on Amazing Spider-Man. And I don't see one name on there that should be on there, but it's not worth talking about at this point. But anyways, thank you, Mike, for that uh, rundown. So Teresa Parker meets the finisher. Insert Amazing Spider-Man annual number five footnote here. So very cool to see Spencer talking about that. I did read that. That was a pretty cool annual, kind of having the first origins of Peter's parents and stuff like that. Uh, meanwhile, Pete talks to Ned as he recounts his whole history. So insert more footnotes and flashback splash pages here to The Hobgoblin Lives, Amazing Spider-Man number 275, 289, Spider-Man and Wolverine number one. So a lot of c- kind of cool callbacks to that as well. And the only thing he does not tell Peter about is who brought him back to life. So... He references that somebody did, but he doesn't really tell him explicitly who that is. Uh, Betty explains how she found Ned alive through something she was working on, the Daily Bugle or something. And then they just decide to get pregnant together. So for what it's worth. And Betty and Ned are asking Pete for help on tracking down Jamie, who is his friend from college that was working with him on the clairvoyant device. And Pete's like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. And he goes swinging off, kind of thinking about everything as he normally does while he's swinging through the city. Meanwhile, Jamie sees Dr. Connors for the catalyst to power the clairvoyant when he runs into a partner who will help him called Slide. And we get into, I don't know if it's sloppy, but it's really weird. Like Chance is basically blackmailing Jamie to go steal his badge to, so, to go steal the catalyst to power the clairvoyant. And it's really dumb, like, Jamie steals 
like the li- the lizard's badge and like it's weird because like dr cons is just the lizard I-, I i mean i think this is probably established in a storyline earlier in this run that i didn't read but it's just walk in and see like dr connor's just as the lizard you know working in his lab and jamie steals the badge and dr connor's doesn't even notice that his badge is missing even though jamie's like we gotta hurry because he thinks that my badge is missing and he might come after he might come after me but he doesn't and then spidey shows up and spidey's like dr connor's jamie is trying to steal your the catalyst and you know that's when spider-man goes after him and yeah, we, we find out at the end here, Spider-Man kind of comes face-to-face with Slide, Jamie, and then Chance, and then some of his goons as well. And that is where our story ends. So definitely like this issue. I feel like this was an issue that Vince would have liked reading because there was a lot of footnotes in it. But I like this. I think it's a good... Th- this storyline is moving pretty quickly here, and I, I like... I, I thought it was pretty good. That's all I got. I feel like it's not like the best analysis, but who cares? I feel like you half read the book the way you talked about that. I I did. I read the I read the book. Did you? Because you're like Pete. You're like Pete runs off because he doesn't want to deal with that. He immediately goes once he hears that his lab partner is involved. He's like, oh crap! I gotta go find him. He immediately leaves to go find him. And he gives and because he gotta go. He's gotta get please Spider Man. Yeah, I, this is moving very fast. It's not drawn out. I, it's a little bit like I said. It's a crowded house with the art team, though. That's that's the problem. I just wish it was like one or the other. I, Carlos Gomez and Zay Carlos. It's I don't think they blend well together. I think that's I think that's the takeaway. The net yeah. lead stuff. I, you know, at this I, I think I was talking to Vince this week. I was like, all anyone does with Spider Man is retcon things from thirty years ago. But also, that's kind of all comics have been for the last thirty years. But much more prevalent with Spider-Man, so like, I'm oh, not yeah. mad about this. Like, who cares that Ned Leeds is back? It'd be happy Ned Leeds is back because he might die at the end of this story arc anyway. <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna be the one sacrificing himself to save the day. It, Calling yeah, it's it right like, here. well, well, we have the cryptic thing of oh, who who did who did he meet to get him back? We know he he was able to get back because of some goblin gas that he was exposed to before he had the the trip in Wolverine Spider-Man or Spider-Man Wolverine, but uh, that that's part of the Brunamac. But like, it, it's kind of the setup there is like, Oh, is Kindred involved going back that far? Cause that'd be kind of a deep cut. Cause we're get the hint that maybe Kindred is just using Harry and Kindred something else. I don't know. Not that Kindred was in this issue. It, this is, but then like we, Risa Parker stuff with chameleon on in the background. Like I'm waiting for these two things to intersect and it's probably going to happen very soon. And then we know this is going to spin off into its own thing again because uh, the same thing. Like Matt Ro- I, think, I can't remember what event it was, but Matt Rosenberg was co-writing with Nick Spencer while Spencer did like the other thing. And now it's Ed Brisson for a few issues, and then it'll go back to normal. It, okay. it just feels like the, the, the only issue is that Spider-Man doesn't need to come out three times a month. But it does need to come out three times a month because it's the most popular character. So you get these like 50 billion things going on at once that sometimes make it feel bloated, but we're still enjoying it. And this is moving well, but we're only two issues. in. We'll see how it shakes out, but we'll go back to Vince for Wonder Woman. Yes. Issue 773. Apparently this is only part four. Um, I feel like we've been reading it longer, but last time I covered this book, I read the wrong issue since I had missed one. 
So I'm caught up. I'm pretty certain I read the right thing. So Diana finally gets to the Valkyries and they're basically like, yeah, we're tired of doing our jobs, so we're just not going to do it. Basically, their take is, you know, war is meaningless and all that. You know, we don't like the violence. We're just going to stop being Valkyries, which, I mean, makes sense. I don't fault them for that. And they cite World War One and Two as examples of when combat lost its honor, which, like, I guess not really. Like, the American Civil War and, like, every other war in the history of war before that was not honorable either. It's never been nice. Um, whatever. And then the Asgardians catch up. I guess they've just been following Wonder Woman the whole time, or they can get there a lot faster. And so it starts a little battle, and it basically becomes this, like, man versus woman thing, where it's like the men want to fight each other and die in Ragnarok over and over again. And they want the women to keep reviving them and, you know, carrying them back to Valhalla. And the women are like, yeah, we don't like that. So we're just not going to do that anymore. And we're not going to be controlled by you men. Like, that's totally how it's written, which I suppose is in line with like Amazonian themes as well. You know, and the Valkyries like connect to Diana, like trying to appeal to her that way. They're like, you know, your whole, you know, thing with the, the Amazonians, you know, you wouldn't, they think you wouldn't be fighting if it weren't for man. And it's like, it kind of connects, but honestly, I, it's kind of cringy, kind of forced. Um, and then Wonder Woman grabs Thor's hammer, crushes it, and it turns out all the dudes are acting like idiots because of Dr. Psycho's enchanted weapons. So they're not quite toxic dude bros. They're just a little bit. Um, and they fix the day. But then Dr. Psycho tries to mind control Diana on the psychic plane. So she punches him, and a dead man hauls him off, ending his guest appearance, I guess. And all the Asgardian factions are trying to resolve their differences. There's a joke about Thirsty Thor's Day. And then Diana sleeps with Siegfried one last time. But on the way out, he gives her his sword. And she's back to Olympia, which is in flames. So that's where we go into the next arc. And I think, I mean, obviously, she's more related to Olympia historically. But I think next arc, it's still basically a loosely a similar idea where, I don't know, she'll be like slightly out of place and up against things like that. Um, it still won't be quite a, quite a traditional one woman story. And also, I'm not clear if Ratatosk went with her to Olympia because he's like riding on her shoulder as she travels through. But then when she's through and Olympia's in ruins, she's like too small on the page where you would see the detail. Then there's the backup, you know, young Diana. It's it's really cute, as always, thanks to Pauline Agenicho, but honestly, no interest in it. This ends this arc in Asgard, and I'm very happy for that because since there was only four parts, like, it's fine overall, but this was definitely not my preferred uh, one Norman type of story, but it was fine. The art's still really good. Now, I, I want to ask you a question. Would you prefer this? Or the Mariko Tamaki run that we got? Well, the actual Mariko Tamaki run we got, or the theoretical Mariko Tamaki run that I thought I was going to get? The one because you got. The, the one I got, this is leaps and bounds better. If, no, if, you just pull, okay. if you just pull those first two issues with Mikkel Janin, those two issues versus this, I would have preferred those. And if it was a, in a hypothetical world, where Mikkel Janning can draw that entire run of like 12 issues or however long it was, I would have taken that, no question. 
but we didn't get that, and that run was a mess. So this was way better. I I don't even think Janin drawing all of that would have saved that run. But focusing on this, it was another solid issue. A little stiff, but still good. The art still great. I'm excited to see how we uh, what we do in Olympus now. Yeah, nothing really much else to add. Very pretty issue though. Very great color, good colors too. I was gonna say it's been a it's been a pretty book since the beginning. It's the, it's yeah. been a standout every issue. All right, retro book time. Yes, so retro for this week we're going back to June 1981. So 40 years ago, guys. Wow. Moon Knight number eight, written by Doug Monk. Munch. I don't know how you say it. Bill Sienkiewicz, inks by Frank Giacoa. Our issue opens to Moon Knight on top of a moving train, thinking it is a monster. So he's obviously on some type of drug, but he is able to stop the train, but still sees and hears voices later on as he walks back towards his hotel. In Washington, D.C., we see some gangster shenanigans going on with some characters by the names of Simon Fox and Crawley. Uh, later on, Moon Knight shows up at a hotel, at his hotel, and is stabbed by Marlene, who Moon Knight is able to knock out. Crawley shows up and tells Moon Knight that stuff is going to go down at City Hall. On the rooftop of City Hall later on, Simon and Fox are confronted by Moon Knight, who then escapes, Simon and Fox escape, planning to poison the water supply. What a typical thing for a villain to do. Uh, Moon Knight catches up to Simon since Fox was shot by Simon earlier as they're getting away. And he stops the water poisoning and Simon all at once kind of using his like tools at his disposal. Uh, this is this is nice. I think the epic I just ordered doesn't collect this. I think it collects only like the first four issues of the series. So I'll have to get the second epic when it gets comes back in print. But I like this. I, I like you know, I don't really have much background with Moon Knight as a character. I know there's a TV show coming out with a character. So I thought this was good. Bill Sienkiewicz art, always nice to look at. And obviously Doug Munch, um, he is the Moon Knight expert, I guess, from what I hear a lot of people talk about. So thoughts, my co-host, what do you guys think? Hey, I, I already know who our Moon Knight expert is, and we'll, we, we might see him Saturday. True. Yeah, this is pretty funny with Moon Knight tripping balls for part of it, thinking he's on the moon fighting aliens. And then also funny that he's still fighting werewolves. Of course, he, you know, spun out of werewolf by night, but it's not really a werewolf. I think there's some cool coloring, you know, different scenes are in darkness. This is early Sienkiewicz, which is often compared to Neil Adams, who he worked with and I think lifted his initial style from. You can kind of see that here, but not really. Um, and he gets progressively more unique and experimental as this run goes on. So we're not quite there yet, but also every time I say that I'm pretty, so Moon Knight, you know, appears in World by Night and then has some of the guest appearances and whatever, but his initial like solo features are backups in the Hulk magazine. And those are drawn by Sienkiewicz. And I think those are like slightly experimental, but it's probably because they were in the magazine and stuff like that. So maybe when, Moon Knight number one launched, maybe Marvel was like, go a little bit more traditional. I'm not really sure. Uh, again, maybe I should ask our Moon Knight expert. But I enjoyed this. Yeah, it, it's wacky. It's crazy. Every time we read a Moon Knight issue, which I think this is the second time now, you're left scratching your head going, well, that was absurd, but it was really good. So it just a very weird character with a very, you know, 
a publishing history that's you know it, very niche to the point but like underrated like very good book like always always good when i end up reading it i'll say that but yep. we'll get to picks the week mine goes to black hammer visions yeah my mine's black hammer visions number five just beautiful execution i don't know <laughs> um you had a whole show to think about it i know i did i still don't know what to do i'm i'm probably gonna go batman the detective number three this is a good issue yeah yeah it was all right nothing really stood out to me this week it was a week where nothing stood out to you but no it was it was still a very good book all right that's all we have for you this week guys we'll see each other physically for the first time in like two years this week that'll be weird maybe we'll do something with that probably not. i don't know i'm not doing one <laughs> that's doing a whole video why not hell no uh i'm gonna do it for my channel you can do it for your channel i whole videos are the bane of my existence at this point i hate them <laughs> we have to do it at longhorn steakhouse <laughs> that's the do only way i'll do it is if we if we if we haul everything into the restaurant and film it inside, but that's not possible. No, but until then take care. We'll see you next week. Have a good one.